0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by Peter Bensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 20. This is Part 1. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast, and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us, and welcome Pete. Chapter 20, Pete. We we are coming close to the end of the book, but there is still so much more to go.
1: Can't wait to start with this one.
0: I'm going to uh, start with our old friend Hinton, because I know how much you love him. Only to say that Ospensky has continued on with Hinton, and I just love the the. the Thing he put right in my first sentence he says um in the book a new era of thought concerning which i have already much to say and i think that is an understatement well,
1: in the first <laughs> half of his book spensky's book the one we're dealing with um he didn't write half of it he just kept quoting hinton and putting huge passages from hinton's book <laughs> <laughs> i think i think it's spensky owes us one here <laughs> it, does.
0: <laughs> it does. Anyway, he's, he's not disappointed us. He's, he's come forward with another quote from Hinton, which I, I must say, I, I find Hinton's quotes a little bit obscure, and this is no exception. But I think what he's saying in the quote is that uh, when you can only explain things in terms of infinite possibility, then you're going to struggle to grasp what that means. Inside a three-dimensional sort of framework.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what he talks about, doesn't he? I mean, Hinton, in this little quote that we've got here, um, he's described, I mean, the, the chapter that is being quoted is called Space, the Scientific Basis of Altruism and Religion which obviously has me rushing to get the book so that I can read this. Um, <laughs> it's almost look, a joke. <laughs> it's as good as I can get. We've only just started. I will get funnier as we go on. Um, but he's, he's talking about when we come apart in infinity in any mode of our thought, it's a sign that that mode of thought is dealing with a higher reality than it is adapted for. In other words, Hinton is recognizing that, yes, There comes a moment in the lives of some people where they have to contemplate this idea of infinity. And we have no way of actually calculating it or even um, mapping it to any linguistic structure or visual structure or any sensory structure whatsoever. We have a word, infinity, that we cannot grasp. We have to move to a different form of reality than the one we think is the only reality. We have to then start accepting the fact that there's something beyond this reality. If infinity is real, which we know that it is because it's the only solution to certain mathematical problems, but it takes mathematics, as Uspensky is going to show us, I don't want to spoil this chapter, it takes mathematics into a different level. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with Hinton on that one did I actually say that out loud? I can't believe I said that, but yeah, I am. I'm with yes.
0: And it's recorded. Oh my Pete. God. You can't I can't go
1: I, back I, now. I can't back out of it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think Hinton explains it. Look, I don't have a problem with what Hinton's um trying to put over. It's just another one of those obscure, blindingly obscure, difficult texts. And it's probably really simple, you know, to understand the concepts. It's just that it bores me into death trying to read his, his, Versions of it. Anyway, moving on.
0: Yes, well, fortunately, um, we're not reading Kinton's book, yes, we're reading and Ospensky's, we're... and, and uh, <laughs> we don't have to um, draw through his uh, long explanations. But uh, Ospensky then you know, throws his quote in, and he's very expressive in what he says understanding infinity would feel like, and, and I like the way he's – He's, he's expressed it. He says, um, you will experience indeed an incredible horror, fear, and sadness by standing on the abyss of understanding infinity. And uh, he does quote Light on the Path again too, saying an intolerable, an intolerable sadness is the very first experience of the neophyte in occultism.
1: So when you read a sentence like, um, truly what is infinity as the ordinary mind represents it to itself? It is the only reality. And at the same time, it is the abyss, the bottomless pit into which the mind falls after having risen to heights to which it is not native. You read that and just think, Oh, that's okay. And I'll just move on to this other quote. You, you don't, you don't actually question what that could possibly mean and uh, where he could have come, where a mathematician could have come up with such, such an idea. No, I mean, I'm happy to move along with you. I just, I'm just, I'm just interested in why you, who are not me? You know, you know we're not. We're, you, you're not me. Although you are really, if we take this to its conclusion. Um, but why? Why would you? Why would anybody read a, read something like that and think, oh, not important, Yeah, yeah, whatever, uh, and and move on. I uh, and you don't think, what the heck? What what could that possibly mean? How could a mathematician? No, we've been we've been all the way through this book talking about a mathematician and a logician, and a philosopher. Um What the heck has gone on here? Where did this come from? No, not not a question. Doesn't doesn't because if you don't question it, then nobody else will, or or a lot of people won't. It doesn't it doesn't come as a surprise?
0: Well, I didn't feel that I had skipped it. To be fair, I paraphrased that whole page down to him saying that you know it's an experience, indeed, an incredible horror, fear, and because, sadness. But you
1: did latch on to straight away the the. The emotional hook word. It's a horror. It's why is it a horror? Let's let's discuss what it, what's horrible about the abyss. What what is the
0: abyss? Well, all right then. So this bottomless pit the mind falls into. I'm assuming it's that it's unfathomable to the mind if it's restricted to what it knows. To imagine everything being not finite, not not tangible. Okay, well, wonderful.
1: Um, Where does the word abyss come from? Where do we hear it all the time? Um, where is it used? Is it used? Um, is this just a throwaway word? Do we not analyze what? Why would he choose that word? You could use anything to say that there's another state. It's another state that we can't actually fathom from the third dimension. That's all he needed to say. He didn't say, he doesn't say that. And he uses it and he uses it twice. This analogy is the the entire first half of this chapter.
0: So what is he saying? Well,
1: he's experienced it. I can only, look, We, you know, I can only point you and others towards a better understanding of the world by looking at what... Everybody has this ridiculous idea of of why these truly gifted, intelligent people drift towards occult science and occult exploration. Why do they do this? Are they just thrill seekers? Is this... Something to do while they were waiting for television to be invented? What is it that they were exploring? And where does this term the abyss come from? The abyss is right there. When he talks about the horror, which you you moved on to, again, this, this isn't just a throwaway line. Anybody that's experienced this or gone near to experiencing it will tell you that it is a shock. And there are people, there are to this day, people... Who are inhabiting? I'll use the old-fashioned term, lunatic asylums. Who've who've had close experience of this and didn't come out of it well. Ceremonial occult orders are there to find safe ways, and they're never truly safe. That's like saying uh, going motor racing safe. You can make it as safe as you like, but there are at 200 miles an hour in an open car. Uh, there are ways of dying. It's it's like this but you try to make you try to you put in systems in place that make it as safe as possible but it's never going to be truly safe and this is these are the words of somebody who's had this experience we keep coming back to his linkage with theosophy and what he's saying here by the way ceremonial magic is perfect for a mathematician because of the logic and the order and the sequence of which you do things and then the experiences become not
0: woo-woo.
1: I'm coining a phrase here. Uh, yeah. Coin a um, phrase, yes. They are very much based on an experience that you can document to an extent using three-dimensional language and terminology. Sometimes you have to invent a terminology. Abyss just means the depth. It's Greek. It's a Greek word and it means depth. Um, so. Yeah, well, you read any, any of the, um, late 19th century, 20, early 20th century occultists, and they will constantly be talking about crossing the abyss, how dangerous it is, how to do it, what you will get there. One of the, the great, um, n- let's, let's use the word negative, negative demons inhabits the abyss, and it's the, the demon Coronzon, which, which is the one that Alistair Crowley, um, notoriously faced in the desert with, um, oh, for goodness sake, I, I know his name and my senility is just taking it straight from me. German sounding name. Anyway, he took this young man out to the Moroccan desert to perform um, this ritual. And it was a long ritual and it nearly killed both of them. And bear in mind, as, you know, Crowley is very experienced and the idea is to cross the abyss and to get beyond this demon, Karanzan or koronzon, or however you want to pronounce it. It begins with CH, so you could say choronzon. doesn't really matter. It does matter, actually, because pronunciation is far more um, important than spelling when you're dealing with these sort of things because it's the frequency and the vibration, blah, blah, blah. But uh, for for the sake of our discussion, it doesn't matter. So when Uspensky uses a term like that, which he didn't need to use, he's telling you something. That that's for a particular readership of this book, not for you, but for a particular readership. And it's worth explaining this that he has this isn't accidental. And when he talks about the horror of what you face in the abyss, i.e., going past three D reality and finding that there is you know just something in between. Now bear in mind the abyss is infinitely wide and infinitely small at the same time because that's what we're going to come to with infinity. But to cross the abyss. Is something that that can destroy your three dimensional mind and has done to more people than you can count. Some people have had the accidental um, experience, spontaneous experience of awakening, and not survived it. And some people have worked it by uh, doing meditational and magical processes. The sh- in the shamanic world, the shaman goes there alone. Or or with spirit guides or whatever but the that crossing happens and some of those are considered to be mad in native cultures that where shamanism is prevalent the shaman isn't quite often isn't an ordinary person within the village when they come back after their experience and they've crossed the abyss um, they're considered to be a bit strange and mad but they can do things and they can heal and they can connect with spirit and so on. They are the conduit between the village and the higher worlds or lower worlds
0: or all the worlds. So that was the question I was going to ask you. Why would you do it? That's why. That's fascinating.
1: And also, why would, why would you do it? As Edmund Hillary famously said. Or no, it wasn't Edmund Hillary. Uh, it was somebody earlier um, about mountain climbing. Why would you want to do it? Because it's there. We're explorers. Mm. A lot of us have that exploration gene, and they just want to see. But there are there are tangible benefits. You come back with potentially with skills and understandings that give you leverage in the three D world.
0: I understand then. Yes. So yeah, well, well pointed out because yeah, I did kind of read those and go, he's being a bit dramatic, as opposed to he's telling us something because yeah, and it is uncharacteristic for Spensky to use such language,
1: especially in this chapter where we're now going to talk about real mathematics and the illusory mathematics you know which we are so i'm sorry to have taken mm. such a, a long time to 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 dwell on one line of, of text but i think it sets us up i won't i won't do that again um, because now we don't have to we talk about what he says you know what do you see what happens when you encounter this first reality and an intolerable sadness in the, is the very first experience of the neophyte in occultism. Is that in your book?
0: That's yeah. That's the that's exactly. The bit An I read.
1: intolerable sadness is the very first experience of the neophyte in occultism, and he's dead right. How do I know that? I've been that neophyte. Um, I think it's absolutely incredible. And then first of all, it would feel astonishment, fright. Fright approaching horror, because in order to find the new world, it must lose the old one. And that's the funny thing. You feel like you're losing grip on everything when you go there. When you hit this part, you really, you really feel like there's nothing I'm on. And paradoxically, you feel alone. You feel an intense loneliness. In the system of Enochian magic, which is like 20 odd steps that you go through and you go out onto what they could, well, what have been described as the ethers. They, it was this is a system of magic revealed to John Dee in the 16th century who worked with a seer named, an Irishman named Edward Kelly. If, if you follow that system of magic, which is what Crowley was essentially doing uh, in the desert with Victor Neuberg. I knew the name would come back to me. With Victor Neuberg, um, that's what was going on. And and it is terrifying. One of the things, uh, the ethers, that you have to step out, you have to learn the, the difference between um loneliness which is where you are on your own but aware that there are other people in the world and that you don't have to be alone but you you're wallowing in it and this 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 idea of desolation where there is nothing else and that's the terrifying bit and you learn you learn them to differentiate it on that particular ether you've got to get past that one before you can move on to the next one and and so on but it's all (laughs) It, it, yeah, fright approaching horror because to find the new world you must lose the old one and it's that it's that sense of loss. We always want to be anchored to the place from which we can get back. It's like venturing into the dark forest like Hansel and Gretel but not leaving the stones behind that you can find your way back with. You have to you have to venture in and understand that, that you you won't necessarily get back you have to trust and, and have faith.
0: Yeah, so Spensky's telling us this without really saying what you've said. No, I know.
1: But but to a particular but to a, a particular audience will know that he's been where he's been. I'll tell you what it's like. If you ever stand on the top of a cliff ready to do a bungee jump, you have to le- when you leap off, you have to have the faith that it'll be okay and you know that the, the bungee will hold and that you'll be reeled back in and all the whole thing. Uh, but you are jumping out or if you do a parachute jump same thing you have to have that faith It's similar to that only the difference with a bungee jump is you've seen a million people do it Safely when you're in the occult world you haven't there are very few people, who, well, you know, there are a few people if you're in an occult order, but once you're out there, you are on your own. Once you've taken that step off, doesn't matter how many people have successfully bungee jumped, yours could be the one where the cord breaks. It's there. Once you've taken the step, it doesn't matter who's around you, really. You still have to take the step. You still have to face it. You can have all the preparation in the world, which you would if you joined an occult order, but you still have to face it.
0: So it's very interesting because, as you said, this chapter starts this way and then moves back to where we were before many 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 chapters ago talking about well how would it how would it feel to understand this and he's using back to his analogy of the animal world which we have discussed in the past it's, it's not
1: just an analogy here this is a, an analogy and and as i shall explain uh, it's also a metaphor but yeah so I'll let you go, and I'll shut up.
0: Okay. No, no. I, I will. I'll lead it in, and you you take it away. So what he's saying is, if um if you were a, an animal and you're comfortable in your the world you've been accustomed to, and then you had this strong urge to reach outside of your comfort zone and say to maybe uh, understand a concept the experience you would have is that everything that you knew before and he uses the example of the horse or the dog saying well this is my house and so this is this that's not my house so that is that that's that house is strange and this is not that that strange house is not my house so that that very basic logic you'd have to throw that out because you'd have to then understand the concept of a house being this house and that house at the same time. So it's no longer, this is not that. It's This is a house and so is this, even though they're different. Shall I stop there? Have you got something to add?
1: I have, yes. I'm also going to go way back before that. Starts this section by saying, let's imagine the predicament of an animal in which flashes of human understanding have begun to appear okay so let's start off he's using the animal because he doesn't want to actually tell you this at this moment he's gonna lead you into this so an animal let's say it's a dog let's imagine that a dog suddenly has a flash of hang on those those creatures there are humans they're not dogs And they don't see the world the same way that I do. And then it's gone. It's just a flash that there's something else that could inspire the dog then to start exploring this, this flash, this feeling of there's more, there's more to existence than I thought there was. That's what happens to certain humans. Now, why do you think? I mean, I know, I know how much you love this book. Why do you think that it's not an international bestseller? You have to have a flash of inspiration that makes you want to explore, that makes you actually first of all realise, hang on, there must be more to life than this, there must be more to it than this. Some people have those flashes, other people just go, ooh, it's all woo woo, and they're the idiots of the world, um, they, and they, they are the true idiots because they, even when somebody that's had the flash, And understands that there's something to explore you don't have to have done the exploration just knowing that there's more to it than the material positivistic world is enough to have had that flash the woo-woo the people that use that horrific term woo-woo are idiots because what they do is they they're not even prepared to have a thought they are if we use evolution, and I don't even, I don't even accept the theory of evolution, but let's, let's accept it for now. They are much lower on the scale of evolution than people who are exploring this idea of different realities, because it's quite clear that there are different realities because we end up with paradoxes and dead ends whenever we try to explore something to its root cause by using material positivistic science. How often? How many times in the history of of this world has positivistic science actually come to a root cause conclusion where they can say, "Okay, we've ticked that box. Now let's move on to something else"? How many times? Well, I, I've
0: had to guess it. zero. I'm going to tell
1: you, since you're sitting there, I'm going to I'm going to go a big fat zero. Not once. Absolutely not once. Not ever. Not once. Not ever. Can it do that? So, you know, these are, these are the things that make some people say, hang on, that especially mathematicians, there's a different reality. Now, mathematicians invent fanciful realities. People that go exploring deep within consciousness experience realities that they can't then put onto a piece of paper. See this is the problem. Mathematicians and scientists need to be able to document it but they can only document it using languages and systems of symbols that are related to the narrow slit of the three-dimensional positivistic material world. Whereas people that go out and experience things occultists, shamans and so on Have no way of representing that experience using the language of the positive. We can do the best we can. We can call things the abyss and the horror. And we can, and we can call certain energetic experiences demons, but it doesn't help because unless you experience it yourself, you won't really know. But it's no good for people to just dismiss the experience of people by saying, Oh, it's just woo woo when you haven't actually um explored what's meant by the science that you so religiously worship. And I don't mean you personally, but people who use that term and dis- dismiss the numinous world. Okay, let's let's talk about clever people. Let's talk about Carl Jung. Carl Jung. Not thick by any stretch of the imagination. Spent his entire working life out there in what he called the numinous, what these people would call the woo um, I, frankly, I rest my mm. case. Even Albert Einstein, which you would think he seems to be the poster boy of, of science and mathematics. He would turn around and did turn around often and frequently in his own lifetime and say, uh, you've really got me all wrong, you know, I haven't proved a damn thing. And you are taking my theories um, as real so that you can then go off to places that you can't prove anything from um, but you base it on me and my name and my name has now gone out there as like the exemplar of all this but let me tell you I find problems with general and special relativity real real problems that you're not solving but you're taking for granted that they're okay and that it will all somehow work out in the end even Einstein was saying this he knew that there's something beyond and said so Mm. And Uspensky Uspensky is great here because Uspensky actually defines where the problem is, and the problem is infinity. Infinity is where material science ends and the real world, the real universe and reality, total reality begins and ends, as we we will see.
0: Which is, yeah, which is why he's saying that uh, in order to understand that you have to let everything else that you thought you knew fall by the wayside.
1: When, it, when I said it was a metaphor, when he talks about the animal having flashes of understanding, he, he knew that he couldn't say humans. He couldn't, he couldn't make some, some people feel inferior. People that are reading this book feel inferior to others. But some people do have that flash of inspiration and then they want to go and explore what is beyond the abyss. They have to have the flashes first and then they find it's really uncomfortable to start thinking of, inf- if you start thinking of infinity, you find that you can't. It's a fact. Try it. It, it. It's a word, but you can't. Have, you can't have. A, uh, um, you can't actually think of it.
0: Yeah. Well, for me, when you know, looking through this book, when it talks about everything happening all at the same time, which is basically infinite mm-hmm. number of possibilities, that is difficult to. It's conceptually you can say, oh well, yeah, everything's happening right. all at the same time. But when you, well, think what like, does that hey, here I'm mean? sitting... And it doesn't feel like that. So what does that actually mean? That's the problem, (laughs) isn't it? You know, it's just
1: words. People, again, and I find it will still be the same people, the ones that would, the ones that go talk about woo and think smugly that they know it all, that everybody else is stupid when they, there's nothing stupider than somebody like that. Nothing, nothing at all in the world is stupider than that. Um, but. Uh when you accept, hang on, I've just had a thought of infinity and I feel like I'm on the edge of grasping it. And then it just goes away. I, I, when you get that. Mm. Yeah. We all, you know, well, when I say we all do people like us, you know, that are aware that there's something more, we do have that. And they are. And then you, and that's what Espensky on about with flashes. I'm nearly there. What I love with this an, uh, analogy of the animal is what comes next when he talks about reasoned logic. And that shift and how that shift in logic works. So let's say, I mean, he uses this is this and that is that. And my house is, is my own and that house is strange. Let me explain what that means. First of all, Aspensky says, before the flash of inspiration, the animal would say, this is this, that is that pointing to something else. And this pointing to where he, where the animal is is not that. And then he he tries to make it obvious by um, saying so let's say the animal reasons this house is my house that house is something strange so the strange house is not my my own i think we can do better than that i think that's a miserable explanation of, of what's going on um i
0: do well he's still using the word house in both so he's basically kind of drawing a by that that example basically saying that the animal recognizes House, which I think is not the point. The point is it isn't even recognized. No, exactly. So that's the point. Yeah.
1: So what, let's, let's use a different analogy. Let's use, let's say it's a dog in a dog kennel and there is an identical dog kennel, you know, across the road that another dog lives in. And the dog will say, well, this is my kennel. This is mine. That thing over there is something entirely different and strange, even though it looks identical. (laughs) Um, because the dog can't, can't uh, doesn't have a concept of dog kennel for example the dog the dog could say oh I've I've just come across a tree and I'm gonna wee on it because that's what dogs can do you know they're prone to doing but I'm in a forest of other trees I don't see that that tree over there that I'm also gonna wee on when I get to it I don't see that as being the same as this I don't think that I'm in a bunch of trees I see this object that I'm weeing on now as an individual object in its own right. And when I get to the next tree, that's something totally different altogether. However, I'm going to wee on it. Um, but it see, it see, so it doesn't have the concept of tree. We've been through this with Spensky before. He, he's, he's, he's done that. Yeah, no, I'm have, just, what have. I'm just saying, we're back to that. So the animal, the dog doesn't see things as a concept. He doesn't understand the concept of tree. It sees an individual object when it gets to it. What does it do with that object? It sniffs it, wheeze on it, moves on, and then it comes to another tall object that it sniffs and wheeze on. But it doesn't see them as part of the same thing. That's what Ospensky is saying here. It doesn't see the, the, the house of the animal, i.e. the dog kennel, as being the same as that dog kennel over there, even though they're identical. They were made of the same wood by the same person to the same dimensions. It wouldn't see that, oh, that's just like mine. That's what Ospensky is saying.
0: See, I I would even argue that maybe what he's actually saying is that the dog doesn't even go as far as saying that is that. He's here, this is this, moves two feet down to, you know, where the other dog is, this is this, moves round the yard, this is this.
1: He's he's right, but he has to to put that in the mind of the dog. The dog probably doesn't. But I will – given that this is an analogy about humanity – how many, how many human beings can you imagine out of the 7.7 billion that there are on this planet? How many of them go around understanding that they understand a concept of house? They don't. They don't say this is this and that is that. They don't even have that discussion with themselves. But that is actually what's going on in their minds. They do understand that there is a concept of house. They would understand that if I show you um, a house in, every house in my street's different, by the way. Nearly all of them are different. It's one of those. It's not like a, a little boxes on the hillside street. So if you're going down my street, the average person would understand that it's still looking at houses as it's walking past each one of them in turn. What we're saying is that the animal doesn't have the concept of house. It will be going, Oh, that's something. I wonder what it is. That's another thing. I wonder what that is. It wouldn't just say, Oh, these are all houses that look different. Mm. It doesn't have the concept of house. Most human beings don't. Most human beings never, never grasp the idea that they are aware of concepts like house, tree, and so on. Most people, most of them are animals. They don't say this is this and this is not that. They don't have that conversation with themselves ever. It's just implied in them. Most people never question anything. They just go along with the assumption that this is this and that is that without ever having to say it but we need to we need to say this because it's a logical concept and he does use the word logic above it to to explain If, if I tell you that that set of statements this is this that is that this is not that that is a mathematical statement it's used linguistic terms rather than symbols but that is a mathematical equation if you were to go to university and study um, philosophy, and you had to do a logic paper, which I think every reasonable university would do. Mm. If you wanted to major in philosophy, you would have to do logic 101 at the very least. Then you would come to understand these logical, um, formulae. That's a lot. That is a mathematical state, yeah. A yeah. equals A. A equals A. B. B, B
0: equals B. B. Yeah. A yeah, that's not right. equal
1: B. That's it. And th- that is, um, a-, a logic gate equation. And, and he's put it in language. Yeah. So that we can understand a thought process, but and that and that's what lo, and that's what logic is for.
0: Yeah, and he correlates logic and mathematics very. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, and I, I, that's that's what I, I love about this chapter. I, I I really love where we're going now in, in this, but I I just I did not want to stop um and just gloss over those those incredible occult references that he put in did you, you realize now that we're talking about this is this that is that this is not that he didn't, we didn't have to go through any of that crossing the abyss and the and facing the horror and the loneliness and and the sadness and and all of that we didn't have to do that at all he could have just gone straight onto this but he what he's doing he's he's leaving markers for a very very specific audience that's what he's doing
0: so, like, he's got two separate sections, one following the other. Is there a link between the two?
1: Well, yeah, uh, look, the, the, the link is that he's going, to, he's going to say that people have experienced what mathematics cannot experience. What? You know, the illusory mathematics, mm. mathematics A, or whatever he's going to call it, can't do. Mathematics 1, I think he calls them 1 and 2. Well, mathematics 1 can't express what certain people have actually experienced. And I think that's the point here. Everything I'm going to say about mathematics is not just fanciful or theoretical. People have actually experienced it. And he starts the chapter by giving us that information. And a certain, mm. very specific audience will be nodding and saying, yep, we understand that you're coming from our perspective, which he is.
0: So he does have a very interesting uh about all of this you know page and a half on when he's finished the analogy with the animal and he says that the animal would if the animal got the concept that this house and that house mm-hmm. are both houses and tried to then explain it to it would be impossible they would animals. say
1: it was mad you know what the other dog do you know what the other dogs would say the other dogs would say Woof. don't come here with all that woo woo That's, that's literally exactly what's happening. So, so the woo wooers of this world, and it's a disgusting, dismissive phrase. uh, It it really does, it it literally does disgust me. That phrase does. And the people that use it, uh, you know, um, I have zero time for them. No, I mean, none. Get out of my orbit. Idiotic morons. But, um, you know, that, that's what the other dogs would say and this is what Spensky is getting at now the term yeah. woo woo didn't exist there was nothing as dismissive of people's experience in his day people were better then they were humanity was better then i don't think humanity is going along a path of, of betterment i i think it's sliding downhill really fast and and the events that we and the events that we are living through now are actually demonstrating it if these recordings surface in a few hundred years time if history has been allowed to be recorded because we're going into an Orwellian nightmare and it hasn't been changed, I'm referring to the COVID disaster of 2020. Just, just, just to reference that. Mm. That's what we're going through now. And it's showing up huge sections of humanity for being the disgusting creatures that they've become and, and that they weren't in, even in my lifetime. So, you know, we're moving downhill fast. So yeah, so I am very, very, um, destructive of the smug arrogant woo-woo sayers and Uspensky is telling us that you know the dog all the other dogs would say it I'll give you another great book for this for this it's by um, Friedrich Nietzsche and it's called *Also sprach Zarathustra in other words Thus Spoke Zarathustra or in the Penguin edition I think it's just called Zarathustra and Zarathustra goes up onto the mountain and has the experience and when he comes down amongst men, um, men have absolutely no understanding and he's ridiculed and so on. Let's think of somebody else that had that experience. That would be Jesus. Jesus had the 40 days in the wilderness and everything starts to go horrifically right and wrong after that point. What, does, what happens in the wilderness for Jesus? Does Jesus encounter some kind of demon? Oh, yes. So, for the 40 days in the desert, see that as an analogy of crossing the abyss, and he's in the abyss, and he meets that demon that, in Enochian magic, has come to be called Choronzon, Choronzon, whichever you prefer. This, these analogies are all right there. Isn't it, isn't it just? That's why I thought I'd say it.
0: <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we, when we, we hear stories of Jesus and, you know, the, the common stuff that's no. not one of them but jesus is
1: jesus goes to the wilderness to find what well, why would you go spend 40 days in the wilderness what, what do shamans do by the way in all shamanic cultures that don't even know about jesus they go into the wilderness to have the what is no what has come to be known as the near death or death experience and this is the death of the ego And now it's easy to say and everybody thinks they know what that means. But Ospensky puts it really well here. It's this idea of letting go. You don't know how you're going to come back. How did Rasputin come back? Mad as a hatter, according to all the accounts.
0: But very powerful.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, but gifted beyond belief in in what he could do.
0: And was he mad or was he, I would have said, eccentric? I wouldn't say either.
1: I mean, yeah, eccentric. Eccentric is a subjective point of view. Uh, eccentric from the point of view of the society yeah, in St. Petersburg that he went to live in. Okay, yeah, Jesus yeah. was eccentric, for God's sake. Jesus was eccentric. Came back from the wilderness and started preaching to people in parables and analogies and so on and metaphors, uh, and then healing people and bringing people yes. back from the dead, and then just walking off like it was nothing. You know. Yeah, all of this stuff, you know. Is there any difference? Shamans do this the world over. They come back completely di- so different from the societies that they move in that quite often, quite often, they're not even seen as the same. Whenever the, the metaphor Nietzsche uses going up to the mountain, by the way, he's not the only one. He he got that, that from somewhere, you know. Muhammad goes to the mountain. Yes,
0: yeah. Um,
1: Everybody goes to and has this experience and comes back different.
0: And Aspensky says, you know, in in his analogy here, he says that the the animal um, will be unable to express that which it senses in any other way than something that sounds absurd. And I think when we look at about all these um, parables and analogies, they're kind of a story that's, that's meant to say something that's happened that's wondrous, but they're taken not as anything profound, they're kind of oh that's an interesting story, but that would never yeah, happen. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, loaves and fishes. Oh, no one can do that. that I don't know. That would just they're just trying to say something but it doesn't really what it was. But in, probably it's it's trying to express something that you can't express in language and sounds absurd. It sounds and that's what he's saying. It sounds absurd because of our framework that we're used to to working within. We have to let that go to make that make some sense. The great
1: thing about Ras- Rasputin and all this is that it was documented actually while Uspensky was there. You know, he was there at the time in Russia at that time. He, is, oh,
0: he was. And what it was the, do-
1: the events of Rasputin and what he actually did, not, not what people claim he did, what he actually did is well documented by highly intelligent people in a cultured civilized society. I, you know, Stop talking to me about woo woo, you idiots, and start looking at actual events. I mean, there, we're not talking about a, a potentially mythical person um, from 2000 years ago. We're talking about people in your frame of reference. Let's put it this way. Um, we're talking about people who were in a cultural um, existence at the same time as, and in the same way as Einstein. Who you revere, who was also alive and working at this time. This is his period as well. So, you know, people that were documenting what Rasputin actually did, as opposed to what, what his, his belief system was or any of this. What did he actually do with people? Um, well documented. And he, and he did it in the same way that Jesus did it. A touch, a word, a look done. He came, he came back yeah. from a Siberian near-death wilderness experience that he chose to undertake in order to come back with these incredible gifts and this understanding and this huge, let's call it evolutionary, you know, spiritual evolution, this shift. He's there. He's something very special at that point. Now, because, um, you have, you know, people are wedded to the a ludicrously imposed, um, moral system they take Rasputin's actions as being oh evil he was an evil man he was doing this and he was doing that well take that framework away and he was just doing things and maybe he was doing things to point out to you the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy of your framework by which you were judging everything and everybody else I know that I'm only speculating um, but others have done exactly the same thing so you do have to wonder uh, Jesus was definitely pointing out the ridiculousness of the Judaic um, framework. Absolutely was, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, and that's just by reading the Bible. Zarathustra does the same thing um, in Nietzsche's work. Every every one of them is doing this. So anyway, moving on to the dog or the
0: animal. Well, all well, I'm I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this next sentence because Spensky then has given his analogy, and he's now saying we are in exactly the same position when we dead awaken, and that's his analogy. I know. Yes. I've underlined this as well. um, I'll just finish the sentence, i.e. when we men come to the realisation of that other life, to the comprehension of higher things. What does he mean by dead awaken? It's obviously that we are awake, but we have gone through some sort of death and come come through into a a new awakened state i'm thinking
1: when you say that we have come through into a new awakened state who do you mean
0: by we he's saying that humans are in exactly the same position when when they get the flash of something that's right new, so it's not we not it.
1: we as humanity it's when those few those those oh very yeah few, yeah of course that this brand, we brand of brothers <laughs> As Shakespeare would put it, uh, we yeah, very few yeah. that do have that. The ones, actually, the ones of us that don't don't talk about and dismissively about woo woo. And that's going to be, by the way, my my theme for this particular podcast. Um, yeah, buckle up. Yeah, buckle <laughs> up, because you know. So the very few that don't dismiss everything that's not the religion of science as being woo woo. Those few that are prepared to accept it doesn't mean that that they have awakened. But they are in a process where awakening is a potentiality. Dead? Yes. When we walk around in this illusion thinking that the reality isn't there, we might as well be dead. We are zombies being observed by something greater.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's what he means by when we did awaken.
1: But it's a great, it's a great word he's used. Now, I mean, obviously we're reading a translation, but it, but this, this new, this new fashion about, oh yes, I've had an awakening. I, it's all over Facebook, isn't it? You see these dumbasses, yeah, when I had my awakening experience and I'm looking at them and I see what they post and it's like, no, nah, you haven't had it yet, darling. <laughs> Get over yourself. Um, but when he said that, and if he used this word, he's using it in a, in a sense that, that this was never going to be on Facebook to sort of virtue signal to other people and then lord it over people who clearly haven't had the awakening experience. Um, this was just a description, and he's chosen that word,
0: mm.
1: and that word has now been that has. word has now been twisted in the in the modern world. I I never use it anymore. I can't because I I am not putting myself uh, or anything that I say into the trough of these new ageist ascensionist awakeners. You know, oh yeah, I'm holier than thou. I'm awake, and oh yeah, I'm so awake. No, you're not. Virtue signalling is not a sign of awakened spirits. But anyway, we'll move on.
0: Yes, well, moving on, he says the same fright, the same, and in, and in third, in, sorry, in italics, loss of the real, the same impression of utter and never-ending illogicality will afflict us.
1: Okay, why does he put loss of the real in italics, which he does in my version?
0: Yeah, in my version too. I, I believe it's because it's everything that you have taken up to this point as being reality is no longer it's an it's it's no longer makes sense.
1: Yeah, and the fact and you know, and consi- to put it concisely, what you thought was the real suddenly isn't. It's the illusion.
0: And then nothing makes That's sense. Right. Because you have nothing to anchor it to anymore. I mean I guess when we we, we build this piece of logic on that piece of logic and the, and and think that the foundation is solid, but the foundation gets ripped apart and everything falls apart and what have you got to anchor well. to? <laughs>
1: Well, here's the beauty of that as well, because that is exactly what happens. And Espensky now describes it as best can be done mathematically. And I think um, he does it stupendously well.
0: I think so, too. And he starts it with, in order to realize the new world in italics, we must understand in italics the new logical order of things.
1: Let's go. Let's buckle up, baby. Let's rock on.
0: Is, is out the window, and he does. He gives it a rip snorter of uh, a, a, a treatment to to make sense of, of what he's saying. So let's start. He says that our usual logic uh, um, assists us because it investigates relations of the phenomenal world only. So this in the phenomenal world related to that has some sort of whatever um, link and you know and so on so it's all it's doing is putting into uh, some sort of construct how something in the phenomenal world relates to something else nothing to do with uh, anything to do with the noumenal. it's only the phenomenal mm-hmm. world so he says um, uh, and this will not translate in a higher dimension so therefore you know it's it's Basically, we're building our foundation of logic on, um, on sand, sand. Yeah, not on solid,
1: solid no, foundation. We're not. And he, he comes up with it. It's great, and I love this. This is a great definition of mathematics in just a few words. Mathematics is the science of magnitudes. In other words, mathematics is all about measuring things. This is this is the language that's used to measure things, which is why science relies completely, one hundred percent, on. Mathematics. If science was purely observational, you wouldn't be able to set it as a foundation against anything.
0: No, but their observations are then uh, bolted on to these. Yeah, but they
1: they need they need numbers to 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 describe the observation. You know, we forget that the observation is purely subjective. Only mathematics can prove that as well. Now, when you get to uncertainty principles and the idea that the observer affects. What's being observed so that you can't actually, um, at that point, you cannot define what you're seeing, what you're observing. Mm. We're, we're in the realm of, of mathematics actually saying mathematics is actually what, what is now. And Hispense would never have known where we were going with mathematics, or he could have perhaps suspected, but he would, ne- he, he never lived to see it that mathematics is actually um, suggesting that, uh, hold on, um, this positivistic view of reality can't hold because what we're noticing at at quantum level is that the ver- the mere act of observation in other words the subjective act actually has an impact on what we thought was the objective in other words the object being observed it changes the act of observation changes it just as just as easily as if we if something if we we had a balloon in front of us and we pushed it away it would move It would be in a different location in a different time. That's what happens to things that we observe at the quantum level. It's like the mere act of, of looking at it is the same as pushing
0: and changing it.
1: It changes it. So, so when you look at something and I look at something, we don't have exact, we don't have the same, um, experience. We don't. We can generalize so that it seems like we do, but in the detail, we don't.
0: Yeah. And Spensky's he's distancing himself from that science by saying that mathematics is the quantitative, it, it relates quantitatively. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is talking about a type of mathematics because we do go on to different types of mathematics. And he's saying that science of concepts, that's a system that studies qualitative or categorical relations between things. So uh, mathematics is your numbers and... Um, the science of concepts
1: is your observation. Can I ask you a question here? Because you, it it has it hasn't been made clear to me with what you just said. Do you think that he's setting logic as somehow higher than mathematics? There, no, no, he's not. He's telling you that they're the same thing, but they use different language yeah. to describe it's exactly two, two same sides thing. of the coin. Yeah, that's it. But they are, but they are the same thing, which means that that in that they are limited to this dimension, which he's now going to do it. This, this next bit, is something that I remember from Logic 101 that I've done. I mean, this is one of the first things that you ever get, these logic gates.
0: Well, take it away, Pete. Take it away. (laughs) Well, they're
1: they're Aristotelian axioms, and he mentions Bacon as well, because, but, you know, they they are. Uh, So, you start off by saying, A is A. And in other words, anything that was A will be A. A is A. Sounds so obvious. People think, "Oh, it's so obvious, isn't it? Is it? Have you ever thought of that? Uh, I ask these people. Well, you don't have to, do I? Yeah, you do. Because without without thinking of that, you can't go any further. A is A. That which was A will be A. And then, here's another one that's obvious to the idiot. A is not, not A. That's
0: a double negative guess. Well, anything
1: that isn't A isn't A. You have to find a way of expressing that in a formula and that's the way that you express it. A is not not. Let's use the letters of the alphabet what it means is quite simple A is A. A is not anything that's not A in other words A is not B, C, D, E, (laughs) F etc. All of those things are not A so A is not not A that's what that means. Everything then, everything in the world is either a or not a. Everything, everything in existence is either a or not a. What do you mean? I can't get my head around that. Well, it's just quite simple, isn't it? Um, for the, for the purposes of the podcast, which doesn't have any visuals, I'm holding up a pen in,
0: front of- <laughs> and I'll verify this it. pen.
1: <laughs> this pen is this pen. Everything else in the infinity of the cosmos is not this pen. So there is A or there is not A. Everything is either A or not A. Everything is either this pen or something other than this pen. Makes sense, right? It's called mm-hmm. logic. Yeah, we're having to think about that. How often have you ever thought about that? However, how often have you walked down the street and saw, oh, somebody's throwing a cigarette packet uh, onto the floor? That... Everything, in, do you know? Everything in existence is either that cigarette packet or it isn't. We don't think about these things, but without without the foundation of that, we don't even have the three D existence that we have as human it's beings. It's like
0: the old saying: there are two types of people in this world: those who believe there are two types of people in this world, and <laughs> those who that don't. And there you go. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. it. <is>. That's <laughs> logic one hundred and one. <laughs> logic one hundred and one. So, Pete, on that note, I'm going to leave it there for this week and continue next week. Thank you so much for all your insightful points of view, rants <laughs> you, and comments. I was going to say, you, meant, you uh, meant
1: my ranting, didn't you? I mean, that's <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that too. We do we do love a good rant. Yeah, I and, like uh, ranting. I look forward <laughs> and I look forward to having a chat with you next week.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it myself. You know, You do realise that ranting is now my hobby. It's what I do in my spare time. Even in an empty room (laughs) where there's only me in
0: it. (laughs) Well, I I, I can tell you've polished it. You've practised it. I've practised a lot, uh, yeah. It's an art form. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again and thanks everyone for listening.